The Be Here Now Network invites you to join Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, and some of today's leading mindfulness meditation instructors for a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. Get the training you need to guide others in their journey with a powerful online training course and in-person teaching events. To learn more, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash GetCertified. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. Today, we have a, a talk that I dug up from the vast archives of Ramdas's work over the last 40-odd years. Amazing. Um, this one is about, uh, it's called The Promises and Pitfalls of the Spiritual Path. And uh, rich material here uh, for those of us that, uh, you know, grew up with Ramdas and uh for those of us who have only recently uh, come to hear about Ramdas, listen to some lectures, read some books, and so on, there's a huge parallel uh, between uh, those days and today. And uh, we've we've talked a little bit about it before. I've talked about it on on this other podcast that we do called Mind Rolling that I do with uh, David Silver. Uh, that's especially dedicated to um, bringing spiritual uh, the promises and pitfalls into a very down to earth uh, manner, uh, so that we all can get a, a more of a grasp. And I'm finding that even those of us that have done a tremendous amount of work over many, many years, these most simple concepts are as applicable now as they were then. Uh, for instance, I totally remember where I was at then. And, um, in, you know, in the late sixties and early seventies growing up then, and uh, I've talked about this before, about being feeling completely alienated and having no rudder, no understanding, no, no promise of anything uh, that could uh, set the sails straight, should we say. Um, and what Ramdas talks about here is this shift in reality that happened at that time. Um, and that shift was obviously predicated by, uh, psychedelics. Because then there was, a, th that shift in reality, uh, it blew against the traditional, blew apart the traditional religious systems that were in place that we grew up in, no matter what, uh, particular religion that you had, uh, you know, grown up into what family you were brought up. Um, and, and what interesting he talks about at the point at which you had that psychedelic experience. Now it's, I don't know if anybody, you know, get pissed that the reality is that that those psychedelics, what, what they gave us was, um, you know, a connection to a part of our being that we had not known before. And, uh, uh, we, what we experienced was being part of the universe, basically. We knew that we were interconnected by virtue of taking these psychedelics, of taking acid or whatever, mushrooms. And that completely was a game changer. And that is completely a game changer today. I mean, uh, you know, I speak to plenty of people, email or whatever, who, who, uh, and, and people in their twenties and thirties who are having the same experience. 
suddenly there's a shift in reality. And, and what, what happens is we see how much of our behavior, uh, was just defense mechanisms to alleviate the pain that came from feeling separate from a feeling. I used to, I felt separate from my family. I felt separate from society. I felt separate from the culture. I mean, uh, this alienation was very, very painful. Of course, that pain in the end, I look at it, uh, as a, as a, that gave me the impetus to even consider there, that there must be something else. There is a separate reality. And that reality was introduced to us by, by psychedelics, for sure. Um, and uh, I love what he says here, um, because at that time, we began to realize the health of our intuitive, compassionate hearts. You know, I mean, yeah, I felt like I was a sick person back then. And when I forget today, I feel like I have forgotten my natural, intuitive heart whenever I get lost. And uh, happens all the time. It happens all the time to all of us. Um, so the promise, once you realize, once you have that shift in reality, there is this great promise and then you start to act on it. And in our case, back then and still today, uh, we are guided by Eastern maps. I mean, Ramdas uses the term maps a lot in many of his talks, especially, uh, directly, um, Connecting what he was going through once he left Harvard and he went through the whole psychedelic revolution and was a big part of turning so many people on along with Leary. Uh, he even talks about, there's a great little uh, story about meeting Albert Hoffman, who, you know, the inventor of uh, acid, our beloved uh, guru, Albert Hoffman. Um, so, uh, Eastern maps, and, and that's what, uh, in his case, he went off to India and, of course, found his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, our guru, called Maharaji. And then, at some point in the talk, he starts to talk about um, the pitfalls. Um, and there's, you know, many different pitfalls, obviously. One of the major ones that happened in those days was um, the teachers that came from the East who were not cooked necessarily. And, and uh, he points out the difference between what a guru is and what a teacher is. Uh, you know, and uh, we, uh, you know, we wanted to turn our, our teachers and gurus into good father figures. And unfortunately, when you're not cooked, as many of these teachers who came over were not, and, you know, I mean, they got involved uh, with um, you know, lust, uh, the whole sexual thing, where um, they weren't ready for free Western women, that's for sure. And in fact, that's still going on today. I mean, there's a whole scandal going on now in the Zen community. A Zen abbot apparently has been uh, uh, misusing his uh, his his power around uh, you know sexual stuff. You know who uh, who I've always known is this great uh, teacher. Uh, so these things are still going on, and. Uh, uh, that is a big pitfall. And, and you know, part of this whole thing, and, and I, I love that he brings this up, and it, it, the concept of surrender for us, you know, surrender to the guru is not about surrendering to another person. Um, and what you're really, you know, uh, surrendering to, and, and, you, and this can only happen with a truly enlightened being. And what you're really surrendering in that case is to the higher truth that he is and that you are ultimately as well. Um, some of the other pitfalls he talks about here are how we realize that uh, 
we we wanted to stop creating karma you know in in every walk of life with our families with our work with our relationships uh with our social action so we started to do things like renunciate okay we're going to give up let's give up sex and then we ended up as a bunch of horny celibates as he says <laughs> so um because when you it is so true when you're when you're doing these things to collect experiences either as uh, actions you're taking on the spiritual path you know from meditation to chanting to yoga whatever it is if you're doing it as as collecting experience which is our natural way uh, especially in the west is 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 achievement um then of course that's a a major pitfall another pitfall he has a beautiful quote here uh from meister eckhart who is a christian mystic um he uh, who said we are to practice virtue not to possess it so you know that really says it there so this is a great talk um and it's in several parts and i'm considering that maybe for the next few weeks um uh, this might be really uh, informative. To, and again, it's for those of us like me who've been um, working on on the path since uh, late 60s, early 70s, when I was quite, quite young, uh, all the way to now when these, the, the, the pitfalls uh, are absolutely the same, especially in relationship to working on yourself. And doing it from, not from a place of achievement. Uh, so the, the promises and pitfalls of the spiritual path. And this is Ramdas here and now. Good evening. Can you all hear me? Uh huh. How about now? Can you all hear me? Yes. Okay. After that invitation, I just want to sit and gloat and glow and just have you all stroke me. <laughs> I'm really great. I didn't realize how good I was. <laughs> when you get old enough, it's interesting. You just sort of become an elder and you, you uh, just get points just for living. Somebody came up to me and said to me today, uh, they were telling me what they do, and they say, you know, Dr. Fadiman is one of my professors. And remembering back when he was one of my students, it took me through. I was starting to go like this. <laughs> Tonight I'm speaking on um, promises and pitfalls of the spiritual path. And uh, then after I speak, um, Rama and Gangadhar, who are two of my dear friends, and I are going to lead some chanting. And um, for those of you that would like to play that spiritual practice out. The reason I'm speaking on promises and pitfalls of the spiritual path is because Stan Groff couldn't get in touch with me. And um, so he created the title. But since I respect Stan so much, because he's one of my teachers, I felt that if he set the title, I should rise to the occasion. So I am going to speak on promises and pitfalls of the spiritual path. It's probably the same lecture, you just keep working it around. Into a, you know. It was interesting to reflect about it today when I was putting this together. I'm talking primarily about the spiritual work in the United States tonight because that is the one that has, um, whoops, this feedback, that's the one that has most um, been visible to me over these past years, even though I'm now teaching more 
um, in Europe and Australia and abroad. Uh, certainly there is a history of mysticism in America. There's uh, Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman and so on. But it was in the 60s that uh, there was a dramatic awakening of spiritual consciousness in America and that is in no small part due to a speaker who has been here on this program, Dr. Albert Hoffman, who I certainly want to honor. <clears throat> I don't know that this is a confidence, but the first time I met Dr. Hoffman was in Basel, and we had lunch together, uh, outdoor restaurant, and um, I was meeting the head of research for Sandoz, which from our point of view was quite a coup. <laughs> and it took a while before he described to me how he would once a year go out in the field where the flowers were with his wife to uh, explore with psychedelics. And then I knew I was with a Lanzmann. But he spoke this morning about realities and the shift in reality, and that was a major shift that occurred in the 60s, was the shift from what you'd call absolute reality, thinking that what you saw and what your thinking mind thought it understood was only one kind of reality, and there were other kinds of reality. William James, of course, had, been say, had said that many years before. You remember his quote, our normal waking consciousness is but one type of consciousness whilst all apart it, all about it, parted from it from the, by the filmus, the, the parted, parted from it by the uh, slightest veils lie other types of consciousness. We might spend our entire life without knowing of their existence but apply the requisite stimulus and there they are in their completeness. And of course, um, it's interesting that William James said that when he was a professor at Harvard, and I was thrown out of William James Hall for doing what he said. <laughs> Up until the 60s, the, um, the primary spiritual containers were the organized religions of this culture. And they were primarily the holders of the ethical constraints of the culture. And they motivated people to ethical behavior through fear and through internalized superego. And they were primarily mediated, the mediator between you and God was the priest. So there was a priest class. And what the 60s did through psychedelics initially was blow that whole system apart because it made the relationship to God a direct experience once again of the individual. Of course, the Quakers have had that and had a long history of it, as, as did other traditions. But in terms of mainstream, it started to be, this was a new concept coming into the culture, which was spiritual and not formally religious. Um, most of the time up until then, mystical experience had been pretty much denied and treated as irrelevant in our culture. Uh, I was a social scientist and it all, I just spurned it. I mean, I was just cynically spurned it. I wouldn't even read that stuff. Rilke said about that period, the only courage that's demanded of us, to have courage for the most strange, the most singular, the most inexplicable that we may encounter. That mankind has in this sense been cowardly, has done life endless harm. The experiences that are called visions, the whole, call, whole so-called spirit world, death, all these things that are so closely akin to us have by daily parrying been so crowded out of our life that the sense with which we could have grasped them are atrophied, to say nothing of God. But then in the 60s that changed. And most of us recognized a part of our being that we had never known before. We experienced a 
a part of our being that was not separate from the universe. And we saw how much of our behavior was based on the desire to alleviate the pain that came from our own separateness. It was the first time that many of us broke out of the alienation that we had known all of our adult lives. And we began to recognize our, the health of our intuitive, compassionate hearts. A health that had been just lost under the veil of our, our minds and the constructs our minds had created about who we were and who everybody else was. In other words, we transcended dualism and experienced our unitive nature with all things. And there was bliss and there was all kinds of wonderful feelings for it. And uh, that glow lasted into the middle 60s. And uh, there was the summer of love in 67. And then, of course, it had started to turn by then. And it did turn. Um, but it's interesting how mainstream those ideas have gotten in the 25 years since that time. When I lecture now to, when I was lecturing in those days, I was speaking to audiences between the ages of 15 and 25. Those were the explorers in those days. And these meetings were like members of the Explorers Club. And we were just comparing maps of, you know, the terrain of the travels. And 25 years later, when I speak in, say, Des Moines, Iowa, there are uh, 1,500 people. And I'm saying roughly the same thing, probably not to my credit, but I'm saying the same thing I was saying 25 years ago. <laughs> And I'd say most of those people, at least 70 to 80 percent, have never smoked dope, they've never taken psychedelics, they've never read Eastern mysticism, and they're all going like this. Now, how do they know? See, how do they know? And of course, the reason they know is because these values, these, the shift from that narrow view of reality into a relative reality, which made all institutions up for grabs, if you look deep enough, all of that has permeated into the mainstream of culture. So that in a way, a person nowadays has much more option about reality than they had at the time that I was coming through graduate school, for example, as is reflected in all of the, the proliferation of, um, of new kinds of social institutions for education. To understand what was happening to us, we started to look for maps. And the best maps that were available to us at that time, that seemed to be readily available, were Eastern maps. Maps from Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, those traditions. Most of the Middle Eastern religions, the maps about the direct mystical experience were part of the esoteric rather than the exoteric religion, and thus they were sort of guarded in a way. Uh, the Kabbalah and Hasidism wasn't as popular as it is now. Sufism wasn't as popular as it is now. So in those early days, we were going to the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the uh, Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, things like that. Um, now, um, and what we found was, um, since this experience was happening to many of us, including the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, there were different strokes for different folks. Different people interpreted the experience differently, and people turned to different forms of practice in order to, to further experience or to integrate what had happened to them, often through psychedelics. Only, the, only partly through psychedelics, of course, but much through that. At that time, in the 60s, in the early 60s, it had happened to us so dramatically that we, I remember Tim Leary and I had a chart on our wall at Millbrook, deter which, which was a curve showing, it was a geometrically rising curve showing how fast everybody would get enlightened. And, um, <laughs> uh, it did involve putting LSD in the water supply, but other than that, it was not terribly dramatic. Okay. 
And it seemed so inevitable and irrevocable because the, the experience was so powerful that, and so irreversible once it had happened that we, couldn't, we started to surround ourselves with other people who had experienced it. And pretty soon at Harvard, we were considered a cult because the people that hadn't experienced it no longer could talk to us because we couldn't talk to them because they didn't know. And it, that, that unbridgeable gulf had started to occur right in our own department of social relations. Now, um, that kind of um, naive expectation that it was all going to be over immediately um, denied all of the information that we read but didn't really, we said, well, we've got a new way because psychedelics are going to do what Buddhism couldn't do and Hinduism couldn't do. Because uh, when the Buddha described how long we've been on the journey since he was talking reincarnation talk, you know the image. He said, imagine a mountain six miles long, six miles wide, six miles high. And every hundred years, a bird flies over the mountain with a silk scarf in its beak, and it runs the silk scarf over the mountain once every hundred years. In the length of time, it would take the silk scarf to wear away the mountain. That's how long you've been doing this. So you take then, you look at this life, and it's less than a blink of an eye. It's just, oh. and then I had a birth like that, and then like that, it's like still frame photography. And those are all births. And with that kind of time perspective, you take your chart off the wall. You start to relax a little bit. <laughs> now, But there, at the same moment, there, uh, a lot of the spiritual literature suggested urgency. Buddha said, do it as hard as you can. This is a precious birth. It's a rare, rare experience to have a human birth. Work as hard as you can, which is just what Western achievers love to hear, of course. <laughs> Kabir said, friend, hope for the guest while you're alive. Jump into experience while you're alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break the ropes while you're alive, do you think you ghosts will do it after? The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten, that is all fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an apartment in the city of death. But if you make love with the, the divine now, in the next life, you will have the face of satisfied desire. So plunge into the truth. Find out who the teacher is. Believe in the great sound. So there was this desire to get on with it, and which we interpreted of taking the entire spiritual journey and making it into an achievement course. And there is a lovely story about a Zen, uh, a boy who goes to a Zen master and he says, Master, I know you have many students. He said, but if I study harder than all the rest of them, um, how long will it take me to get enlightened? The master said, 10 years. He said, well, if I work day and night and just double my efforts, how long will it take? Master said, 20 years. <laughs> and he asked with a more uh, further achievement, and the master said, 30 years. And he said, why do you keep adding years? The master said, well, because you will only, since you will have one eye on the goal, there will only be one eye left to have on the work. And it will slow you down immeasurably. And in a way, that was the predicament that we got so attached to where we were going, that we really had little time to deepen our practice to get there. And that is something that has, um, has we've grown. We've grown to the point where we've developed patience and we've stopped counting. And that is great growth for a Western consciousness to do that. I mean, I do my spiritual practices because I do my spiritual practices. And what will happen will happen. And whether I'm going to be enlightened or free now or 10,000 births is of no concern to me. Because what difference does it make? What else am I going to do? Okay. I can't stop anyway, so it doesn't make any difference to me. 
but you watch to make sure you don't get too trapped in your expectations about any practice. It's a lovely story about um, Nasruddin, the uh, Sufi uh, mystic um, slob. Um, he's kind of a bum. He's great. I mean, the stories of Nasruddin are delicious. Uh, an aside one, the one I love, this isn't the one I'm telling, but the, <laughs> is uh, the one about Nasruddin going into the bank with a check to cash, and he hands the check to the cashier, and the cashier studies the check, and the check looks wonderful, but Nasruddin looks like a complete derelict, and he said, Sir, this check looks fine, but can you identify yourself? Nasruddin reached into his pocket and pulled out a mirror, and he said, Yep, that's me. <laughs> But the, uh, the one I wanted to tell you of Nasruddin uh, was Nasruddin uh, was talking, uh, he went to his neighbor to borrow a large cooking pot and his neighbor said, Nasruddin, you know you're very undependable and I really treasure this big pot and I don't think I can give it to you. And Nasruddin said, my family is all coming, I really need it, I will bring it back tomorrow. Finally, begrudgingly, the neighbor gave the pot to Nasruddin. Nasruddin took it home, very thankful, appreciative. Next day, he was at the door with the pot, and the neighbor was delighted. He says, Nasruddin, how wonderful. And he took the pot, and inside the big pot was a little pot. He said, what's that? Nasruddin said, the big pot had a baby. <laughs> so the neighbor, of course, was delighted. So the next week, Nasruddin came, and he said, I'd like to borrow your pot. I'm having another party. The neighbor said, of course, Nasruddin, take my pot. So Nasruddin took the pot, next day, no Nasruddin. The day after, no Nasruddin. Finally, the neighbor went to Nasruddin, he said, Nasruddin, where's my pot? Nasruddin said, it died. <laughs> See how you get sucked in by your own mind? <laughs> Starting from the 60s, the, um, uh, there was an influx of Eastern spiritual teachers. Um, I remember going to the Avalon Ballroom uh, in the company of Sufi Sam to uh, hear Allen Ginsberg introduce A.C. Bhaktivedanta, who was going to chant this weird chant called Hare Krishna. And that was just in the early 60s. And uh, the Beatles, of course, were jetting with Maharishi Mahesh. At one point, I went with a group of hippies from the Haight-Ashbury. I was the elder of that group to meet with the elders of the Hopi in Hota Villa to arrange a Hopi hippie bee-in in Grand Canyon. <laughs> because we were honoring them as our elders, but they really didn't want to be honored by us, I don't think. <laughs> because when we went there, we made terrible mistakes. We gave feathers to the children, and we, some of us made love by the uh, well. Because we really didn't know how to honor lineages properly. And that is something that we learned over these years through our connection with Eastern traditions, something about lineages. And um, the problem, of course, with lineages were, the problem was how much we would incorporate of the lineages as they were from the East and how much we would modify them. And the predicament about all of that was that to modify them, you have to modify them from inside them. You can't modify from outside. And what many Westerners started to do was take a tradition, say, from Mahayana Buddhism and say, well, that's all fine for Tibetan Buddhists, but really what we should be doing is this. And they did that prior to fully understanding the practice from the deepest place inside. Carl uh, Jung talks about Richard Wilhelm in his preface to the I Ching. Uh, and he talks, calls him a Gnostic intermediary. And he said what he did was he incorporated into him the Chinese being into his blood and his cells so that he was dreaming that way. And then he brought it back to the culture.
And the interesting thing about Gnostic intermediaries is we were so eager to get ahead that we were really doing violence to a number of the lineages because uh, we went to the west, to the east rather, and bought them, but we kept modifying them in order for our own convenience and comfort. And because we in the West are much more of a personality cult than the East, that we are much more focused on what I want, what I desire, what I need. And that isn't true of Eastern cultures as much. I mean, it may be more repressed there, but whatever it is, it is not a dominant theme. And so a lot of the spiritual practices are not focused around personality, and thus they are not quite immediately transferable to the West. Um, I didn't really understand lineage. I remember doing a television show with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and uh, we were talking about non-attachment as the quality of mind that was so desirable, and I said to him, well, if you're so non-attached, why don't you give up your lineage? And he said, I am not attached to everything but my lineage. <laughs> and I said, well, you have a problem. And it was out of my grossness of not understanding the way of the intimate love affair one has with a method, where one goes into a method first as a kind of a dilettante, and then one gets into the method in a, in a more or less fanatic way. Then one comes out the other end and then one wears the method or uses it or honors it without being attached to it, just because it, you become the unique carrier of that lineage. It's a whole different place that you carry a lineage from once you don't need it any longer. And that was something that I didn't understand at that time. Well, what we did was we gathered together around our newfound spiritual awakenings on all the ways we knew how to get high. So there were people that gathered together around sexual freedom, there were people that gathered together around drugs, there were people that gathered together around chanting, others around meditation. And we had wonderful Eastern names for them, the Satsang and the Sangha. And um, the predicament is that after a while, most of those went from being very fresh and pure and joyful coming together, they started to turn into um, having boundaries around them, having elitism, having who was in them and who wasn't in them, and um, professing that their way was the only way. And a lot of us have seen much violence done from just that simple concept that my way is the only way. Um, it reminded me in those days of that story of God and Satan walking down the street and they see this brilliantly shiny object on the ground and God reaches down and picks it up and he says, ah, it's truth. And Satan says, oh yes, here, give it to me, I'll organize it. <laughs> and that roughly was what it felt like, that it started to become institutional and structured in the 70s. And faddish, it became the in thing to be part of these large uh, spiritual movements. And they were beautiful and they got people incredibly high. The predicament was that many of the Eastern teachers who came over had come out of primarily celibate renunciate paths. They weren't ready for Western women <laughs> who were at the middle of their sexual freedom and feminism and they could do anything and they were just absolutely vulnerable. They just fell like flies. Um, <clears throat> Because these people were teachers, they were not gurus. A guru is a cooked goose. A guru is, is done. A guru, the, the, the difference between a cave and a, a city makes no difference to a guru. To a teacher, it makes a hell of a lot of difference. Because a teacher is pointing the way while a guru is the way. And it's a very different quality. What a guru does is mirror for you where you aren't. That's all they do. But we, we, can, we took that whole concept of guru and we turned it into our need for a good father in a psychodynamic sense. And we wanted the guru to do it to us. When in fact what happens is that the guru just is like a tree or a river. And depending on your karmic predispositions or readiness, you do it to yourself. 
in the presence, and the, the guru is a presence that allows you to do it. It's a presence that doesn't catch you anywhere, only you catch yourself. <clears throat> and so what, um, what happened was that we, uh, after a while, started to bring our judging mind to bear on the whole scene, and I was surrounded by people coming up with gossip about this spiritual teacher or that spiritual teacher, and it seemed like everybody was becoming a connoisseur of clay feet. And they were busy deciding whether they could afford to take a teaching from somebody who was impure. And they were looking for the impurities in order to protect themselves because they misunderstood the concept of surrender. And they thought what you do was you surrender to somebody else as a person. When what you really surrender to is the truth. Ramana Maharshi says, God, Guru, and self are one and the same thing. And so what you're surrendering to is your higher truth or your higher wisdom in the Guru. And it's an interesting issue that has gone on for many years, and I'll talk about it in, on the next page. <laughs> the issue about surrender. And about, because surrender is a very unpleasant word to us in the West. It always has images of MacArthur and, you know. Uh, it's terrible images, you know, of I accept your surrender. And it's, it's the showing of the neck in vulnerability. And uh, the fact that surrender is such a deep part of the spiritual path is something that we have had to stretch a great deal to understand. I'll come back to that. Um, as we learn more about the traditions, we realize that um, if we were going to incorporate what had happened to us in the through psychedelics, but we were going to use these other methods to stabilize and integrate them into our lives, we were going to have to do a lot of purification. At first, we poo-pooed that. It was like the Ten Commandments. You, who cares? You know, that's all old stuff. That's all, all those uptight people. And we can have all of our things. And then we began to see that you had to stop creating karma to get your head in a place where you could get high and not come down. That was the interesting question. How do you get high and stay there? That was the way we used to say it. We don't say it that way now. And so there was a big push for renunciate practices because the idea was that this earth plane is the illusion, it's causing trouble. The best thing to do is get up there, get out there in sort of la-la land, get really high get into the place where it's all divine. And this is sort of an error that we all ended up here anyway. That was a kind of renunciate model. And so people felt that by giving up a lot of things, they would get very much purer to be able to have deeper experiences. And many did, but others just ended up sort of like horny celibates. It was like a... <laughs> because they collected the stuff as an achievement again. And Meister Eckhart said, we are to practice virtue, not to possess it. And that was the issue. We tried to possess it and wear it like marks on our sleeve about what, how pure we were. But even a little bit of shila or yama or whatever your purification rituals are, of just not creating suffering, not stealing, not killing, not... not not having adultery, not, uh, you know, not, not causing a lot of trouble. Um, even that affected us, and we started to have many, many more spiritual experiences. And that led to a time of such spiritual materialism. Uh, I mean, it, my, it boggles my mind, because everybody was in rapture or bliss. Everybody was having experiences, seeing radiant balls coming to talk to them. It was an incredible time. Now, this is all true, but the way we reacted to it was what was interesting because we got absolutely enamored of all of the phenomena that occurred as a result of our practices, our meditation or our spiritual purification. And we really were very vulnerable to spiritual materialism. And we had a, if we had a Ford in the garage, we had an astral being in the bedroom. <laughs> 
And the, the traditions warned us about this. They said, don't get stuck, like Buddhism said, don't get stuck in the jhanas, in the trance states, because you'll go into trances and you'll experience omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. Don't get caught in it, just notice it, nod to it, and go on. Don't get stuck in it. But we, uh, it was too tasty for us to let it go, and it continues to be quite tasty. It's very hard to understand that the spiritual freedom is very ordinary. It's nothing special, and that's what's so precious about it. And we keep trying to make it into something. With all these powers came a tremendous amount of energy, because if you meditate, you quiet your mind just a little bit, the amount of energy that is dissipated through your monkey mind of thinking brrrr, going from here to here, the minute you concentrate it, even the tiniest bit through chanting or meditation or anything, you start to tune to other planes of reality where there is an incredible energy. It's like if you're a toaster sticking your plug into 220 instead of 110 and everything fries. And many, many people had these incredible and continue to have these incredible experiences of energy or Shakti, or what's often called Kundalini, which is the energy rising up the spine. And I recall the first time it happened to me, I really thought I had damaged myself. I mean, it was so violent. As it started up my spine, it felt like a, just a thousand snakes climbing my spine. And it got to my second chakra, and I remember I ejaculated automatically, and then it kept going up, and I was really frightened, extremely frightened, because I hadn't expected anything this horrendous. And I get calls all the time, as does I'm sure the Spiritual Emergence Network and uh, Stan and Christina, who've done a wonderful job with that organization, by the way. I get calls often from people who are having Kundalini experience, who says, I'm a therapist in Berkeley, and this thing's happened to me, and I ride my bicycle for six hours a day, and I don't get tired, and I can't sleep, and I cry at the strangest moments, and I think I'm going insane. And uh, I said, well, let me read you a list of all the symptoms, which I have in the Xerox. <laughs> and she said, I thought I was the only one having that. I said, no, it's Xerox. Swami Muktananda published it a long time ago. <laughs> and it's just Mother Kundalini at work, and don't worry, it'll pass, and just breathe in and out of your heart, and keep it soft, and so on. But a lot of these phenomena started to happen to us, and they scared us, or they excited us, or they entrapped and enamored us, and we stopped to smell the pretty flowers. Many people, when they went into the plane where they experienced this power, brought their egos up with them and interpreted it as my power, and they went into a messianic uh, journey where they tried to convince everybody that they were the one. And... Uh, that was very painful for everybody, extremely painful. Um, I remember a moment with my brother who was in a mental hospital because he, he was Christ and he was doing terrible things as Christ, it turned out. And there was a moment where the doctor and the, my brother and I met in this hospital ward together. And the doctor wouldn't let him see anybody without the doctor being present. And the, I came in a beard and a dress and beads. My brother was in a blue suit and a tie, see? And he was locked up and I was free, which, the humor of which didn't escape any of the three of us, you know? And he said to me, um, we were talking about whether the psychiatrist would ever know he was God. Um, the psychiatrist was writing on his clipboard, very uncomfortable, I mean, because my brother and I were really out there floating. And then my brother said, I don't understand. Why am I in a hospital and you're free? You look like a nut. And I said, well, I said, you think you're Christ? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm Christ too. He says, no, you don't understand. I said, that's why they're locking you up. <laughs> the minute you tell somebody they're not Christ, watch out. And so um, that was the messianic phenomena that happened along the way. Is this too heavy or are you still with me? Okay. <laughs> Because um, I'm trying to cover an awful lot of material a little fast, and I'm sorry about that. Um, now, in a lot of people, when the energy got so intense from their spiritual practices, they really lost their ground. They lost it on this plane. And that's what the Spiritual Emergence Network has done, because, done to help these people, because 
in India or other cultures, when that happens, those are called, like Meher Baba served those people, they were called musts or God intoxicants. And everybody knew if somebody flipped, like, like Anandamai Ma, one of the greatest saints of all time, she was a Bengali woman, a very dignified woman, and she spent about two years doing cartwheels in her front yard and throwing off her sari and stuff. Now, in our culture, that is Bellevue material. <laughs> and in that culture, it is, ah, there's a god intoxicant. We must take care of them at a temple. So that there was a very... Uh, we have not had a support system for that kind of of transformative uh, loss of ground, which you need to go through at times, and you go through the ground and then you regain it. A lot of people just went out. You know, I remember in the early days, the whole game was to get everybody out, to get them to let go of their minds and the heaviness. Then you looked out and everybody was floating, and the, I look at half the audience now, I want to say, hey, come on up for air, it's okay, it's not so heavy in life. The other heart, I want to say, come on, get your act together, learn your zip code, get a job, for Christ's sake. You know, it's a... <clears throat> when spiritual practices work a little bit, but you're not stable in your transformative experience, your faith is flickery, and that is when fanaticism breeds strongly. The mosquitoes of fanaticism breed in flickery faith environments. And that is really what happens to most disciples in spiritual scenes. They become much worse. When you meet, when you meet a, a, um, a spiritual master in any tradition, you meet a Zen master or a Hindu, a Buddhist, Sufi, doesn't American Indian, whatever time you meet a master, you know, you meet and you recognize another amensh, you know? And like, we're really here. And they don't sit around saying, well, you're not following my way, so you're lesser. But all of the disciples right under them usually do. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to Ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you. <laughs>